From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. If you're watching on the National NRB Network, Channel 378, DirecTV, or listening on the Truth Radio, KUTR AM 820, we welcome you. I have two very special guests right here. We have Bailey, she's in second grade, and we have Shaylen, she is in fifth grade, and uh, they're from West Jordan, and they have come. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know if the camera does it justice, but these girls have beautiful hair. In fact, I asked them if they wanted to say anything. They said no. They just wanted to to smile for the camera. But actually, they do want to say something. Are you ready, girls? One, two, three. We just want to say hi to our grandma and dad. All right. Very good job. Thanks for being on, you girls. You can go up right out up there. Thank you. And if you have other family or friends who cannot get Heart of the Matter through television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and they can watch through streaming video uh, from anywhere in the world. You know, people often email us and they say, how can we help uh, Heart of the Matter? Many people say, I'm in financial straits. I can't help you that way. That is fine. I suggest two things. First and foremost, pray for us. That is probably the most important thing that people can do is pray for the ministry. Pray for me as the host. I need it. And secondly, tell your friends about Heart of the Matter. There's people who get on Facebook and they do things and texting and blogging, email, forwarding clips, whatever. We're fighting a multi-billion dollar religious conglomeration, but Believers' grassroots efforts have brought down bigger things before, so consider it, will you? Uh, I was a born-again Mormon. Get it at www.bornagainmormon.com or where most reputable Christian books are sold. Here in town, check out utlm.org for books and also for information, any information, historical information about the LDS Church, Lifeway Books, or Christian Gift and Bible. I want to personally invite you to join us for our weekly verse-by-verse Bible study. If you're already in a Bible study, fine. If you want to learn more, great. If you go to a church, no problem. We have people from all types of denominations and churches, people who don't believe, people who do believe show up. Uh, Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. And then at 1 p.m. every Sunday, AM 820 KUTR The Truth rebroadcasts this very program, Heart of the Matter. Now, KUTR AM 820 uh, is an excellent Christian radio station here in the state of Utah, which we wholly endorse. And they have some of the best Christian programming uh, available. Uh, So check us out, our program uh, on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. 
In the LDS Church Magazine, July uh, 2010, the Ensign, uh, there's an article by Apostle, Apostle M. Russell Ballard. You can find it on page 47. But anyway, in that article, Ballard instructs LDS people on how to interact with the world because, quote, as he put it, the church is getting stronger. In the United States, Ballard says, we are now the fourth largest church. Latter-day Saints are everywhere in communities from coast to coast and from north to south. Then speaking of Mormonism's social prominence, uh, he cited a recent, quote, a recent Time magazine article which ran several photographs of prominent Latter-day Saints. This prominence, Ballard said, ensures the church is going to be talked about more and more and that Latter-day Saints are going to find themselves in more and more gospel discussions. From that, he went on to give two suggestions on how members of the LDS church should engage in conversations non-defensively. Remember, non-defensively. And his first point he suggested was, one, don't let irrelevant issues drown out more important topics. Okay, don't let irrelevant issues uh, drown out more important topics. Under that heading, he says, Our church members have often allowed others to set the conversational agenda. An example is of plural marriage. This ended in the church as an official practice in 1890. It's now 2010. Why are we still talking about it? It was a practice. It ended, we moved on. I want to tell you right now, it was a practice, and while the practice ended, you didn't move on. You are still practicing it spiritually in your uh, temples where LDS men can marry more than one wife and have them sealed to them for time and all eternity. It's still one of your doctrines in your Doctrine and Covenants, which you have not rescinded. It's not just this practice, Ballard, you liar. It is a fundamental principle of your religion. And you are telling your people to tell others who investigate it was a practice. It was done. You say, if people ask you about polygamy, just acknowledge that it was once a practice, but not now, and that people shouldn't confuse any polygamists with our church. In ordinary conversations, don't waste time trying to justify the practice of polygamy during Old Testament times or speculating as to why it was practiced for a time in the 19th century. Those may be legitimate topics for historians and scholars, but I think we simply reinforce the stereotypes when we make it a primary topic of conversation about the church. In other words, what he's saying is, I think that we keep bringing up the truth and we don't want the world to know the truth. So just discount it and act like it's no part of us today. Ballard, why don't you go and remove Doctrine and Covenants 132 if it's not part of your church? Because you know that you believe it as a principle, an eternal principle. And if you remove 132 from the Doctrine and Covenants, what you are saying is that Joseph Smith was wrong. Because Joseph Smith taught that once a principle is introduced, it is eternally in place, even if it's not practiced. You're a deceptive man. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> oh, God of heaven, we need you in our lives. Forgive us for our failures and our sin. Uh, help us to turn to you as our source of strength. Comfort us with your spirit. 
uh, enlighten eyes, open ears now, Lord, as we talk about uh, Mormonism relative to biblical Christianity. Help our volunteers, our staff, our uh, technical stuff that goes on. Help the audience, whether here or throughout the nation or world who are listening, uh, that they will learn and that the things I say which are not of you will just fall dead on the floor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When it comes to all the beliefs battered around today, what would you say is the number one core issue belief or doctrine that makes a Christian a Christian? I mean, there are a number of very important doctrines and beliefs that we have and that we stand upon, like the makeup of God, the resurrection, the virgin birth, the veracity of Scripture, the deity of Christ. But what is the main doctrine that separates Christians from the rest of the religious world? I would suggest to you that it is the biblical understanding and the, the belief in God's grace, which is the final G topic for this year tonight. A major part of the mistake people make when seeking to understand God's grace is reading, is failing to read the Bible contextually. Now, I do, just don't mean look at the 20 verses before what you're reading and 20 verses after, but I mean reading the whole Bible as a whole when you consider God's grace. Anyone can take a single verse or, and build an entire errant system on it alone. I'm convinced that in order to help people understand God and His grace, we must first expose ourselves to somewhat of a biblical primer on the context of grace as found in the New Testament. Once we have this foundation poured, as it were, we'll be better prepared to see and understand the New Testament description of grace. Now, so let me begin with an illustration, okay? Bill Clinton was once President of the United States a Democrat, if I'm not mistaken. He had his administration, he had his staff, he had a cabinet, and he had a political agenda in place. As president, he dispensed, like a, like a drugstore pharmacist will dispense uh, medicines, Bill Clinton dispensed his approach to governing the nation. Was he the president of this United States? Yes, he was. Did he represent U.S. Gover uh, governess? Yes, he did. Did he do it from the White House, our nation's seat of power? Yes. When Clinton left the White House, there was a shift in the way things his successor, a Republican, George W. Bush, would dispense his governess through. But W, like Clinton, was also the president of the United States who represented U.S. governess and did so from the seat of power of the White House. Through his administration's staffing cabinet, he dispensed his approach for governing the nation. We saw the same situation um, of different dispensations or uh, through Jimmy Carter and then through Reagan taking office, okay? So getting to the point, in a much grander way, this is what God did when transitioning from the Old Testament to the New. He governed from the same throne on high, just as Clinton and W governed from the same White House, but God employed different, completely different administrations when it came to the nation of Israel as compared with the Gentile world. What made the difference between President Clinton's and W, between uh, Carter and Reagan was that they were dis was what they were dispensing out of the White House as they governed. Uh, 
So it is with the difference between God in the Old Testament and what he dispensed to the nation of Israel and what God in the New Testament dispensed to the Gentile world. From dispensing, we get dispensation. And I'm going to speak tonight about the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. Now, this word gets really touchy because God has all along been a God of grace and mercy. And he has progressively built upon previous ages or administrations, if you will, to accomplish his will. So in this case, there really are no true dispensations, so to speak. But at the same time, prior to Jesus becoming flesh, God dispensed one form of administration to the Jews called the law. And then when Jesus came, he began to dispense an entirely new system called grace. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, God dispensed to the children of Israel the law. And it came in three parts. The moral law, which we all know as the Ten Commandments. The ritual law, which told them how to worship, their priesthood, their sacrifices, etc. And then they had a civil law, which were like the rules and the, the laws of their community. This law for the people of God was in place for a long time. And it was hard. And it was never successful in bringing one person, anyone to God. And it also promised a Messiah. Okay, under it, everything was kind of an exchange. If you do good, you get good. If you do evil, you get evil. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In the end, the law served to show the nation of Israel their absolute need for a Messiah. Now, here comes the tricky part. When the Messiah came to earth, meaning Jesus, his ministry, while he was alive, was to the house of Israel. To be clear, Jesus' physical ministry was not to non-Jews. And in fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are an extension, my friends, an extension of the Old Testament administration. Jesus' words to the nation of Israel were to convince him that he was the promised Messiah. Certainly, Jesus came in the flesh and died for the sins of the world, absolutely. But while he was personally here on earth, his ministry was to his brethren, the Jews, and not to us Gentiles. Peter, one of the original 12 apostles Jesus chose to carry the message forward into the world, was called to preach to these very same people, the Jews. So when we read what Peter said and did in the scripture, it usually, with only a few exceptions, was to the Jews and what God expected them to do upon coming to understand Christ. Now, while we all know the law was fulfilled at the cross and the Lord paved the way for the gospel to come forward for all men by the shedding of his blood, none of the gospels or even the early chapters of Acts ever has God saying, you no longer have to go to the temple here. Or you, know, or you're, you're, you never have God saying you are completely free from the law. We don't have any of those directives from God in those times because these changes took time. In fact, the word grace in the sense of people being saved by it and it alone is not even mentioned until midway through the book of Acts. Why? Changes of administration take time. Moses gave the law and God began building upon it toward an expected end, grace. 
Then when the nation of Israel was settled in the promised land, they had the city of David, they had their, their temple on Mount Moriah, uh, the expected Messiah arrived. Uh, but what did they do with him in spite of his miracles and them owning the prophecies about him? They killed him. They crucified him. Changes in administration can be difficult at times. So much were the Jews against Jesus as the Messiah, they continued to reject him through the first books of Acts, where the earliest years of the Christian faith are detailed. So Peter, in the book of Acts, and remember he's called to preach to the Jews, and the apostles, they're filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they begin to draw a crowd in front of them. Uh, because they were supposedly drunk with the Spirit. And this crowd consists of whom? All Jews. And they were from all over the place, gathered for a Jewish festival called the Day of Pentecost. And uh, before the apostles knew it, they got these 3,000 Jews standing before them. And remember, the grace administration had not yet been placed in office, folks. It had been elected to office, but the law had to finish its term. You have to understand that. So Peter is still clinging to, uh, calling to the nation of Israel to repent and speaking to them, what does he say? He goes to their history and he goes in Acts 3.24, he says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after and many as have spoken have likewise foretold these days. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So right there on that ancient ground of their covenant nation, Peter speaks to these Jews directly according to the administration of their own dispensation of law, all the while gently mixing in the fulfillment of the promised Messiah's arrival. Then he says in Acts 2.36, quote, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Under the law and all it entailed, the moral law, the ritual law, the civil law, they took the promised Messiah when he came and they killed him. All right? Now, let me introduce to you the president of the next administration, as it were. His name is Paul. And if we go to the book of Galatians, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles. And listen to the approach he uses compared with the approach Peter used. Paul says, grace be unto you. And peace from God, the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Peter is telling the Jews that they are the children of the prophets who foretold the Messiah, and then he adds that they crucified this Messiah. And Paul is gently telling the Gentiles that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for sins to deliver us out of this present world. Why? The Gentiles had never expected any Messiah. They were not, they were just heathens. They were just steeped in sin. They had no law they were ever under. And so the dispensation, the administration of grace fell upon them wholly while Peter talked to the Jews and he expressed to them uh, the gospel in a very different way. Paul would never say to a Gentile that they were children of the prophets of the foretold Messiah. Instead, he tells them Jesus came to save them from their sin. It was a whole different approach because two different administrations were being dispensed 
uh, at, with two very different themes. One theme is couched in law, the other theme couched in grace. So after Peter delivers his message, Acts 2.37 uh, tells us how the Jews responded. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, this is key. Listen here really closely. How did Peter respond to the Jews who were standing upon thousands of years of covenantal ground and being under the law? It says in Acts uh, 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, well-meaning people all over take this passage of Peter and they apply it to their Gentile selves as directives for what they must do in order to be saved. But this is a misapplication of the word of God and it's a misunderstanding of grace. Peter was telling the people, you have to change your mind, repent about who Jesus was. You have to repent for killing him. And then submit to being washed, which was a big part of their rituals under the law. That is, and, that, and you should do this in light of this information you have just heard. But what did Paul say to the Gentiles? Remember, he was called to preach to them alone, who had no idea of a coming Messiah, but asked the same question. Paul said, just believe. When Paul and Silas were in jail and it miraculously fell down around them, one of the jailers came to him terrified and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Remember, Peter told the Jews to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and they would receive the Holy Spirit. But Paul and Silas said something completely different, as different as the Carter and Reagan administration. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Repenting and being baptized was the same clarion call John the Baptist gave the Jews as he was preparing the way for their Messiah. Peter's message was not much different and both were directed not to Gentiles but to the nation of Israel. And repenting of their failure under the law and being washed as an outward symbol was part of their administrational demands. Peter told them to do this in order to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But we have the same reverse situation occurring with the Gentiles. When Peter was having one of his only recorded interactions with some Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, he preached to them and they received the Holy Spirit while he was preaching. And then Peter said, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost? as well as we. What Peter says to them is, these have already received the Holy Ghost. Can we stop them from being baptized? Where to the Jews, he said, repent, be baptized, and then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The to the Jews, listen, it was repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To the Gentiles, it was believe, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, repent, and be baptized. You got that? Once the good news actually got underway and out to the Gentile nations through Paul, we entered into a new dispensation, a dispensation of total and utter grace. So the book of Acts serves as a very transitional book, which allows for the ebb of the law to rescind from the earth, while at the same time allowing the flow of grace to overtake it. When Jesus returns, however, law will return. 
But in the dispensation of grace, God introduced his new administrator to the world, and his name was Saul, changed to Paul. Just as Moses went up to Sinai, the Sinai Desert, and received the law, Paul went to his own Sinai, Arabia, and for three years learned, not from men, but from Christ, through revelation, about the implications of this new covenant. You see, Peter had, had, had got to pick with the 11, another apostle, to fill their spot. And they cast lots and they chose Matthias. But God wanted another person to represent his new administration of grace. And until he came forth, God kept this administration of grace veiled from the Jews' eyes. When people came to understand that Paul was in charge of dispensing a new administration of grace and that the law was completely fulfilled in Christ, but still used by Peter uh, with the Jews, the light of grace will start to get brighter in your eyes. You'll start to see the difference. And so will passages when you're reading in Scripture about repenting and being baptized they'll start to uh, make sense in context. It's Peter talking to Jews versus Paul talking to Gentiles. We find in the teachings of Paul these things that are not found anywhere else. But what is important to remember is Paul incorporates everything from the past in his dispensation of grace. For example, when Paul and Cyrus visited Berea, the believers made sure that what he was teaching would be supported by the Old Testament, and they concluded that his message was. Paul was not like some upstart who came along and claimed to have revelations that were going to add to what uh, had already been given. He, he brought in what Jesus did, combined it with the Old Testament, and taught the dispensation of grace. Um, Hard as this is to hear, even Peter didn't fully understand what Paul was doing. In fact, we can read uh, it, that uh, he writes in 2 Peter 3.15 that many of the things Paul has written are, quote, hard to be understood. So it is, uh, after this, let me try to explain this clear. And we have a graphic, all right? So we see the dispensations of law and grace. The dispensation of law was given by Yahweh. The dispensation of grace to Yesh by Yeshua to Paul. Moses received it, visited Sinai, then introduced the law to the children of Israel. Paul visited Arabia and introduced grace to the Gentiles. Now we go to the next thing. The result when Jesus came to earth, the children of Israel were told to repent for rejecting the Messiah, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, and believe. The, the Gentiles were told uh, about Christ, the Holy Spirit entered them, they believed, they repented, and were baptized. We have all the same elements, but they're in a different order. So Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, he even says that in Romans eleven thirteen. and going to the Gentile nation, uh, he, in personal visits and letters, he reveals a gospel that is administered to the Gentiles, and though he preaches and teaches the same thing Peter teaches, Jesus Christ crucified, his dispensing to the Gentiles has different order of demands than the dispensing Peter does to the Jews. It's not contradictory. It's really no different than a change of administrations. When people take the messages of Peter and combine them with the messages of Paul and try to make some sense out of it, soteriological chaos that means chaos on how we're saved ensues. You're not sure. You think, well, I'm saved by grace, but it says be baptized. You have to look contextually at who the audience is and what is being spoken. God began, began changing administrations the moment Jesus was born, and it would not happen overnight. 
But from Paul, we are able to understand with clarity how God saved all who believed on him through the death of his son by grace and grace alone. Next week, we're going to talk about what grace is then and what the scripture says about grace. And we're going to compare it to what the LDS say about grace. But you had to understand uh, beforehand when we read scripture, who is speaking to who. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Please have your questions or comments ready. First time callers, if at all possible. LDS callers are a priority. Turn down your television sets and let me take a minute. We're not going to run the spot. I'm just going to tell you about the partners program. Now, we have people who support us financially uh, with uh, a dollar in the mail, and we have people who support us financially uh, with uh, their prayer, uh, I mean, with $20, and we have people who are partners, and they uh, come and they agree to, to, to support us $84 a month um, for a year. That's a partner. But I want you to know, however the Lord leads it upon your heart, it's great with us. We, we don't care. We just set the partners program up so that people who could do that and were blessed to do it and led to do it have a way that we can then plan. But please, just understand, we're grateful for everything. We're also grateful for your prayers. And we're grateful for people who have volunteered. We had a volunteers meeting. We had about 80 people show up and uh, all of them giving uh, things that they're going to start helping us with. So the ministry is taken off because of you. We're grateful for all you do. Please know that you know who you are. Uh, if you just started or if you've always been with us, we are so thankful, and I just wanted to tell you that. Okay, we are going to go to the phones. We have Mike in American Fork. We're going to go to him in a second. He's a first-time caller, but we have a statement. A caller has a friend whose bishop said, the persecution of the LDS proves the church is right, um, that the church is the real church. Thoughts? Well, you know, we persecuted Nazi Germany, too. Does that mean that they were good and they were right? I mean, we persecute and we, we punish criminals for doing things wrong. Does that mean that they're right? I mean, just because you are challenged in your errant faith, does it mean that you are right? It's, this is a system and it's built into the totalist methodologies that cults use. Robert J. Lifton said when he studied communist China that cults will always say, listen, the outside world hates us. They're trying to kill us. They want to hurt us. And they create an us versus them mentality. So the people that are within the cult, they're always like, that guy looked at me strange. That means, that means they hate us. And that means we're true. And, and, and Jim Jones of Jonestown, he Totally, I mean, he used to go around and fire shots himself through the windows of his building and then run in and say they're firing at us to build this persecution complex. You know, you want persecution. The LDS have had how many die? How many die from persecution? I would say no more than 20. No more than 20. Christians, they estimate 64 million. Million. And the LDS walk around with this badge like, we're so persecuted. You were driven out because you're trying to take over the United States of America. You know, I, I, I don't agree with being driven out of Nauvoo and your other places, but you had Joseph Smith riding around on a horse in a uniform and leading a militia. What the heck do you want? You were practicing polygamy secretly. You were printing things in newspapers, talking about becoming gods and how all the other churches are wrong. You deserve the persecution. You bring it onto yourselves. And when you get it, you say, oh, it's because we're true. <laughs> What's gotten into me tonight? All right. Uh, so that's my answer to that. 
Oh boy, this is always a hot one, and I always get, we have another question. What does the Bible say about tithing? Does it have to be 10%? Tithing is 10%. That's what the word means. But it's an Old Testament uh, uh, application. It occurs in the Old Testament. The New Testament, we have one uh, um, reference to giving that I believe is really a true reference, and it comes from uh, not Jesus talking about tithing of mint, uh, mint and anise and all that stuff. Remember, that's Old Testament. In the New Testament, Acts forward, we just have 1 Corinthians 9, and it says, be a cheerful giver. You know, If you're not a cheerful giver, don't give. There's no blessings in it at all. I mean, if you grudgingly give a dollar, it's not worth it. If you grudgingly give $100, forget it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. All right, so you got to give from your heart in the, in the new covenant, and that's a beautiful thing, okay? So that's what it is. We're going to Mike in American Fork, first-time caller. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, hey John, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks. Uh, I just have one question, and, and then uh, I'll, I'll let it go. But uh, when uh, I was talking to one of my friends today, and uh, he said, he asked me why I was... Uh, uh, dogging Mormonism, when I said I was only speaking truth, I was only speaking uh, what's been taught. And he said, do you think we go around dogging, you know, your faith? And I said, um, it's right there in the Joseph Smith testimony where he says that all other churches are an abomination. He says that God says that. So um, as soon as I said that, my friend uh, rebuked and said, hey, um, well, he's talking about the churches that were in that time, and you have to go back to that time frame. He wasn't talking about all the other churches. So what is your um, uh, uh, reply to that? I would say, well, ask your brethren today, since, we, since we're going to use this argument, uh, is the LDS church the only true church on the face of the earth? And, and that's, that's why I, it's exactly what he said. And what did he say? He said... Uh, just back then it was. Oh, well, and so yeah. You you are so, talking to the prophet who can who can speak for the church because that is not doctrine. That is not doctrine. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. And yeah. then the second thing that we had brought up was how we had record of when he received the Melchizedek priesthood, and. Uh, from his father and his father and his father. And it's funny because um, if you read in, I think it's Hebrew 7, it talks about how Melchizedek did not even have yeah. genealogy because yeah. it didn't matter. So why is it so important to have that in genealogy and to know who gave you your priesthood if, you know? What, jo what Joseph <laughs> Jesus did is only a high priest. What, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. And it is in Hebrews. And what Joseph did was he took the Levitical priesthood of this handing down through their genealogical lines from, uh, from uh, was it Seth? Someone? Anyway, uh, the Aaronic priesthood, which came through uh, uh, Moses' brother Aaron and then through Seth on down. They took that lineal line of it having to come through them and they applied it to this false priesthood called Melchizedek priesthood and they did the same thing. It's, it's such a, it's a laughable joke when, it, you, when you look at the Bible. And yet the LDS don't look at the Bible because it conflicts with, with this teaching that Joseph Smith brought to them. Right, and, but I just appreciate everything you're doing, Sean, and I pray for you. Thanks, so, Mike. God bless. Appreciate it. God bless you. Bye-bye. Listen, we get a lot of email from people who are very distraught. Um, they feel abandoned by friends and family, spouses, children. Uh, even God. Some of them have left the LDS church. Some of them are leaving. Some of them are uh, in a Christian church. 
Uh, we live in some desperate times. We live when people are facing a lot of difficulty, and it seems to be uh, being turned up a bit. Uh, the story of Job is included in Scripture for our benefit, and um, God and Satan, they kind of made a wager, for lack of a better term, and, and, and Job wasn't let in on the wager. You know, he was just let in on, on losing every single thing around him. And it's very hard to endure problems when we know why we're enduring them. It's extremely difficult to endure troubles when they seem meaningless and they have no meaning. So maybe you feel lost or abandoned uh, because of uh, sin in your life. Maybe you think you are too far gone. Maybe you feel lost and abandoned. No one cares about you. Maybe you've considered suicide. We get suicidal emails quite a bit. And I want you to know that nobody on this earth, nobody, no matter what they have done, is beyond the reach of a living, loving God. And he is there for you. And in all your despondency, and cry out to him with your honest heart. Honest heart. Don't try to fool him. Just be honest with your God. Tell him that your heart, and he will come. He will succor you. He will help you in these times and difficulties. He knows you. He loves you, and he can see things that we cannot. So go to him and speak to him. I just wanted to say that. I had that uh, to, to bring up. All right, let's go to Dale in West Valley City. He's a first-time caller. Dale, you're on Heart of the Banner. What's your comment or question? Okay, um, I'm a pastor, yeah. and I listen to you talk about the dispensation of, of law versus grace. And I'm, I'm a question on what you define grace as. As a kid, I heard the craziest definition, and that was that grace was the blanket under which we sin. And that is so far from the truth, but it is in reality of what a lot of Christians think. Yeah. I, think um, it's, I, it's... I have grown in, up in the church, and not in a Christian church, however... I've come to an understanding of grace, and I have, I have a, listened to several definitions. The Eastern churches define grace as the dynamous power of God. God's divine ability and power to overcome in our lives. Taking that a step further, I would personally define it as a, a, God's divine ability to overcome in my life what I cannot. I can agree and with that. I think the LDS, there's a problem with that right there for them. Yeah. They're trying to overcome it. Yeah. They can't. That's an excellent uh, definition of grace. Uh, the LDS, uh, at least in their writings, in their Encyclopedia of Mormonism, concur with you, actually, that the grace of God is his uh, a willingness to help you get through your problems. So it's uh -huh. sort of a mixture between what you said. Yours is much more leaning on deity, where theirs is kind of a Correct. mixture. Uh, my definition is the old standby, which everyone uses. Grace is an unmerited gift. It's something we have not earned in the least. And that, uh, we, didn't, we didn't earn being created. We didn't earn Jesus coming in the first place. We haven't earned his blood. We don't earn resurrection. It's all grace. But bottom yeah, line, it's unmerited gift to me. What do you think of that, Pastor? Well, I would agree 100%, except... The definition of mercy is not getting what I deserve. And right. I think you can't have, if you use that definition, you have to tie that directly to mercy. Yeah. Otherwise, you come up short. Yeah. I would agree with Theologically. you. Good points, my friend. Thanks, Pastor Dale, out in West Valley City. I hope your church is going well. What church is it? I Pastor Valley Free Will Baptist Church. You're a Baptist? I'm, I'm, I'm kidding you. I'm a Baptist. You. Totally kidding you, man. What's that? I, I'm totally kidding you, Pastor Dale. 
Go get them. Lord bless you. Thanks bye, -bye. For, thanks for watching. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to uh, David in Salt Lake City on line three. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey there. Hi, David. I can't hear you very well, but um, I joined the show a little late tonight, and I had a question about something I thought I heard you say, that when Jesus returns, that we will live under the law. Yeah. Can you explain that a little further? Well, the Bible says that uh, the law is going to return. The Jews are going to even uh, practice uh, animal sacrifice again. And uh, we know that from the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus will rule with an iron fist. And he will come and he will lay down the law. And he is going to return angry. He's a God of grace now because of his blood. But when he returns, it's not going to be the same. We're going to see a, a powerful, demonstrative God ruling by God's will and ways. And so uh, that's biblical. I don't have all my passages. Maybe I can drum, uh, drum those up for you and mention them on a future show. But uh, if you get into scripture, you'll find that he, when he returns, the dispensation of grace, the administration of grace is going to be over. So now's the time to jump on ship. I lost you. No, I'm just, I'm just pondering that. I know I, I've read it in Revelations. I just never really have thought about it so much. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of goes opposite of uh, what, how kind of the secular humanists paint Jesus. They For paint sure. him as, you know, the flower child of, of all peace and love, and he is. That's why he came and did what he did. But when he comes back, he's ticked. I hope that helps, my friend. It uh, sure does. Thanks so much. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Gavin in Ogden. Gavin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Gavin. This uh, is Gwen. Gwen, you're on the air. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I don't have a question. I have a comment. It's about your teaching that a little while ago uh, you had mentioned about uh, when Paul uh, went back to... Um, Damascus. Yeah. I mean, to Arabia. Yeah. Well, I just I wanted when I found this out, I Jesus or uh, Moses and Paul actually went, went to the same place for their teaching. Sinai. Uh, yeah. If you go in verse six, the last part of sixteen says, "I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles, but I went to Arabia." But if you go over to chapter four, verse twenty-five. It tells you what was in Arabia, where he went. It's comparing the two covenants, uh -huh. and it said Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Huh. So Mount Sinai actually is in Arabia, and I think it's pretty exciting that to think that uh, Paul was back at Mount Sinai to receive the instruction from the Lord, and so was Moses. They were both at Mount Sinai. I just got real excited when I found that out and uh, you know and in your teaching i thought well that's kind of an interesting side note to that gwen, they gwen both got their... that is an exceptional side yeah. note it's yeah. excellent so, so they both got taught at the same place from the lord wow. but i like your program i watch it all the time and thank you so much thanks so much for calling for that information okay bye bye, -bye. we're going to dean in murray utah I love when I get corrected. 
Dean, how you doing? Oh, good. How are you doing, Sean? Good. You're on the air. Oh, okay. Um, hey, listen, I just wanted to point out something that um, Jesus, if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, yep. then his word stands firm and forever. And um, the fact that he told Peter, um, which means small stone, his name means small stones, that he would build his church upon this rock, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that the gates of hell would not fell against it, means that his church, either A, he wasn't the Messiah, or B, his church was built and it's lasted through the ages. And um, Joseph Smith uh, made some kind of a comment that uh, Jesus himself couldn't hold his church together. Yeah. And that, that, is, uh, that is blatant blasphemy. Um, yeah. And um, Jesus is the Son of God, and he has carried his word firm and fast through the, the centuries. Yeah. And I just wanted to point that out. If he is who he says he is, then his church stood. And uh, that Messiah right there... Um, is the Messiah I worship. Uh, if, it, if, his, if his church fell away, then he's not the Messiah. Amen, Dean. Great comment. Really appreciate it. All right. God bless you, Sean. God bless you. Bye-bye. Hey, will somebody, one of our operators, get online and type up that quote? It's on the front page of utlm.org, Joseph Smith's quote. I'd like to read that so that the audience knows what Dean was talking about. And so we can hear exactly what Joseph Smith, the founder of the LDS Church, said. Okay, so Dean brought up a good point. We have a question here. Do the LDS have a prison ministry? I think they do here. Uh, oh, I know they do here in Utah. In fact, they pretty much control uh, the prison ministry. And you have to go through their administrators to be able to have access. Now, they do let other chaplains and pastors go into their prisons, but um, uh, it's usually run and, and controlled by the LDS church. Uh, I tried to get into the prisons to, to speak when we first uh, got here, and they drummed up some kind of charge they said I had in California. And, uh, they, and every time I tried to find out what it was, they, no one in California could tell me, but Utah claims I have it, and it's kept me out of there. I would love to go into the prisons. In fact, uh, we're going to try to be going in to do some interviews for our next year's shows with some people who were LDS and uh, were involved in some things, that uh, Mormonism and some crimes. So we look forward to that. David in South Ogden on line three. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, so Sean. Yes, David. Uh, yeah, I got a question, a comment, okay? Okay. Uh, did, uh, did you say earlier that, that when Jesus returns, he's going to uh, reinstate the animal sacrifices? No, he's not. Uh, well, I guess he is. Uh, the Old Testament says that the Jews will. I think it's in Isaiah. Someone can correct me. That the Jews is will. It, is this Sean? This is Sean. Okay, okay I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but Remember, I didn't understand. Did you, did you say that? Uh, that I'm asking is that in the is there's going to be sacrificing of animals again? Yeah, the Jews will okay. sacrifice again. Okay, okay, I got you. Not and the us. Other thing I wanted to say, I don't know if they made the. Uh, I've got a friend. Um, he's a lifelong Mormon. Of uh, my friend's David? father, and he says that, uh, in you know, in the Book of Revelation that um, talks about persecution, great persecution of the church in the latter days, and that because the Mormon church is persecuted more than any other church in his eyes, it proves that they are the little flock. And I'll get off the air and, and let you respond. Okay, thank you. Keep up. Did anybody have any idea what he said? No. No, I didn't either. 
I'm sorry, David. I couldn't understand you. So uh, next time, it's about the little flock and something else. So maybe we can try to do that another time. You know, many people, believers and non-believers alike, have the wrong idea when it comes to Scripture. Some say that it's not at all inspired and that this would be incorrect. And because the Word of God is inspired, meaning God breathed, inspired, God breathed. And some make the mistake of saying that everything in the Bible is true, that everything in the Bible comes from God and is true. Now, this would be incorrect because there's many things in the Bible that are espoused by men, and uh, they are truthfully reported. They are true in that they did were said. But Satan makes comments in the Bible that are not true. Job in his despair makes comments because he didn't have the fullness in front of him about things that are not true. Uh, Solomon says things in Ecclesiastes that are not true. It's just the Bible is true and that it reports things clearly and truthfully for us. Now that's such a, a testimony to me because God allows this to be in his word to show us that men get in points of despair and they get in points when they're having difficulties and they'll say things that aren't correct. In Job, we have God come toward the last chapters and he corrects Job. But, but so you just have to differentiate sometimes when we become dogmatic and say every single thing in the Bible is God's word true and we follow it. That's not the case in that sense. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that it is inspired. It's infallible. And the original uh, autographs are inerrant. But still, we just have to make sure that we're always honing our skills in how we communicate with people so that when we can understand how to tell them what is and what isn't. Uh, we are going to go to Barbie from Maryland. Barbie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, I was just calling because I wanted to let you know that um, I was just up at the Palmyra pageant in New York. Oh, yeah. Um, with Christian Research and Council. There was 26 of us this past weekend, and we were able to witness to a lot of LDS. And um, the pageant's still going on, and I think today they were going to do 34 wives. Um, oh. So we just need your prayers. and. Excellent. Very exciting. Did you have any great conversations? I did. I witnessed to more people than I witnessed to in years. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was tremendous opportunity. It was well, great. that's that's excellent. Hey, Barbie, when you're out there in Maryland, will you do us a favor and tell people about the program? I will. All right. Excellent. Thanks for watching. Keep up the good work. We'll pray for you. Sure. Pray. Pray for everything up here in New York, or I'm not in New York, but in New York this week. We'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. What Joseph Smith said, listen to this, quote from History of the Church, Volume 6, page 408 and 409. Come on, you prosecutors, you false swearers, all hell boil over. You burning mountains, roll down your lava, for I will come out on top at last. I have more to boast of than any man ever had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. 
the followers of Jesus ran away from him. But the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. When they can get rid of me, the devil will also go. That's the man that you are following. You think that I am an antichrist? You write and you say I'm Korahor of the Bible, of the Book of Mormon. You say that I'm going to go to outer darkness because I get on the air and I preach Jesus is the only way that no man can come between you and him. And Joseph Smith, your leader, says this and you believe it and you follow him. We love you. We care about you. We want you to be free from the bondage that you're in. And these men are lying to you even today. And just as Joseph Smith lied to people then, it's horrible. Uh, let's go to Matt in Salt Lake City, first-time caller. Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing, Sean? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I just have a question about what you said about uh, Ecclesiastes. You said that uh, Solomon said things in there that aren't true. I just wanted to ask what those things were because I, I, I was reading it, that. studying it, and stuff like that. So, Well, he says things that uh, are true maybe in the sense of uh, the human existence, but it's from a humanist perspective. And I'd have to get the book out, and maybe I can follow up with that next week. I shouldn't open my mouth. But he says things like, you know, um, this life is, is just not worth it, or, or things like that. And, and it is worth it. God wouldn't have created us. God so loved the world, he sent his own son. But he, he's, he's emphasizing the negative, and it's not true in the concept of all God wants for his children. And that's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that he was wrong in expressing that, but I'm saying that some of his advice in there, you're not going to take as God authored and true for your life. So, but let yeah. me look at that, Dave, uh, Matt, and I'll check it out and see if I can prove it. All right, thanks. You're welcome. Good call, though. I like to be yeah. checked and called on uh, because it keeps you sharp, and I shouldn't say things I can't back up, but I think I'll be able to. We have John on line three, and it appears he is LDS. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. This evening, I'm doing fine, John, and how are you? Wonderful. Listen, it was uh, recently brought to my attention that there's two other states that celebrate the 24th of July, Pioneer Day. That there's what? There's two other states that celebrate the 24th of July, Pioneer Day. Who, what are they? Illinois and California. We celebrate that? Yes. How? I guess Illinois is because they left, and California because they didn't make it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. <laughs> That's it's awesome. so close to the holiday. Good one. Really good one, John. Anyway, we want to maybe keep in mind that the reason the church is growing so fast is we've got those real professional salesmen that are out there two by two all over the world. Yeah. 60,000 plus knocking on doors every day telling people that the church was taken from the earth through apostasy and Joseph Smith who has more to boast of than any man on earth, including Jesus, restored it. You know, we're fighting a, a very, and we're fighting, just like Ballard, the apostle said, the church is growing, fourth largest in the nation. It's scary. It just, it's, just, it's just unheard of what they're doing. Just keep up your good work, and I love you to death. Thanks, John. Love you, too. A great joke. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to Dave and Logan. He's a first-time caller. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hi, how's it going? Good, Dave. How are you? Good. 
Uh, I just had a really quick question. Yes. Uh, last week you mentioned a scripture that said, I, I'm probably way off on this, but you said early on the people would get revelation through prophets. Yeah. But in the last days, people would get revelation through the Son. I was wondering if you could tell me where that was at. In That's the Bible. Hebrews 1. Uh, one through three. All right. That's all I had to ask you. All right, Dave. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. We have two minutes, 40 seconds left. I'm going to try Hayden in Draper. Hayden, you only have two minutes, my friend. I just wanted to say, when you, that statement from Joseph Smith, he contradicted himself because he said that he held the church. He was the only person that could hold the church together, and yet he only held a large majority, but not all. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good insight. Have you read anyway, that before? I'm sorry, say that again? Have you read that quote before? I've not. I've heard it, but I haven't read it before. You're a good listener, Hayden. Thanks for watching. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. We have a bunch of emails, and I'm sorry, so many of your emails are, 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 are really good. Literally hundreds of them are good. But Scott, uh, he writes that he just uh, came upon some YouTube clips and two weeks ago, he and his wife took off their garments, and uh, they went to their first worship service in Washington Heights. Yes, good job, Scott. Scott asks, he says, our parents and most of our family have no idea, and I guess that is where I am really, what I'm really scared about. I love my family, and I know this is going to hurt all capital H-U-R-T, my mom to the deepest core. Please give me some suggestions. Uh, Scott, uh, of course, first and foremost, trust God. Trust Him. Pray to Him for your parents. Become a more loving, a more caring, a more devoted Christian man, and let them see the difference in you over time. I don't even tell them that you've, you've, done, you've made this move. Let them notice the difference, and when they bring it up, tell them how long back you left the LDS church, and let them see the difference. You tell them now they're going to be looking for the dirt, you know, but if you tell them after the fact and they see the change in your life, they might say, wow, something's really happened. So we pray for you, and we pray for all of you out there who are abandoning ship, who are leaving the LDS church, who are questioning your faith, who are going to utlm.org and seeing what is said, who are looking at the Bible with introspective eyes, who are praying to God and asking Him to open your heart to know the truth, who are knowing that we're drawing toward end times, that Jesus came for a specific reason, and that reason was to save you from your sin. When you exit this world, you're going to be covered in the blood or you're not. Covered in the blood, absent with the body, present with the Lord. Not covered in the blood, not a good thing. Not a good thing. And you have to be born again to know you're covered in that blood. Come and join us next week as we explore Mormonism as it relates to biblical Christianity. We'll see you then.